0: This is a recording from the University of Virginia's More Than the Score Lecture Series, made possible by the Alumni Education Program in the Office of Engagement. Who are Frankenstein and Dracula, and why do we love to fear them? Stephen Arata, professor of English, and Susan Tyler Hitchcock, former UVA faculty and nonfiction author, teamed up on Halloween to tell Frankenstein and Dracula's long, strange, and intertwined life stories. The recording begins with an intro by Tom Falders, president of the UVA Alumni Association, co-partner of the More Than the Score Lecture Series.
1: I have the pleasure of introducing two uh, members: well, one current faculty, one former faculty, um, and they've got a, a rather unique subject matter, which I'm sure you all have read about. Uh, Stephen Arata has been a member of the faculty of the English department in UVA since 1990, where he's currently the NEH Mayo Distinguished Teaching Professor and Associate Chair of the department. His teaching and writing focus on British literature between 1800 and, the, and World War II. Recent public publications include classroom editions of works by George Gissing, William Morris, H.G. Wells uh, for W.W. For Norton and for Broadview Press. He's also the general editor of the centenary edition of the works of Robert Louis Stevenson, which is scheduled to be published in 38 volumes by the Edinburgh Press uh, between now and 2016. So Steve's going to be busy. Um, as a youth misspent, uh, watching horror movies led him uh, 20 years ago to write an essay on Bram Stoker's Dracula, which, to his surprise and gratification, was well-received and which continues its weird undead experience through citations of subsequent and very much alive critics. Susan Tyrell Hitchcock, studying English literature at the University of Michigan boo, and the University of Virginia, yay. Uh, that's right.
2: <laughs> yay, yay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you all remember the subliminal man, Messi? You know, right? Anyway, um, from which she received a PhD in 1978, writing her dissertation on the English Romantic poet Percy Bysshe Shelley, who most people know as Percy Shelley. I had to ask her how to pronounce his middle name. Uh, for more than a decade, she taught humanities at the UVA School of Engineering and Applied Science, and it was during that time. Uh, that her interest turned to Percy Bysshe Shelley, uh, to, uh, for, turned from him to his wife, Mary uh, Wollencroft Goodwin Shelley, best known for as, as the author of Frankenstein. For years, she's collected books and objects related to Frankenstein, as you can see to your right, and that collection resulted in a 2007 book in which she published with W.W. W. Norton, Frankenstein, a Cultural History. And in 2008, in, in an exhibition sponsored by the Rare Book School um, uh, in the Rotunda, Uh, She had a a display uh, called The Monster Among Us, Frankenstein from Mary Shelley to Mel Brooks. (laughs) Ms. Hitchcock is known to UVA alumni for writing and editing many alumni publications over the years, including The Pictorial History of the University of Virginia, published um, by the University Press, which she wrote in 1999, and we have a copy back in the Virginia Room if you'd like to refresh your memory. Uh, She now works as a senior book editor at the National Geographic Society and lives in Albemarle County. So help me welcome both, both uh, Susan and Stephen.
2: Thank you so much. Um, we have quite a story to tell you. It probably does begin, in fact, on a dark and stormy night in June of 1816, uh, near Geneva, Switzerland. Um, a group of five... English gadabouts, who decided to exile themselves to a country where free thinking was a little bit more easy to do. The cast of characters is Lord Byron, Uh, by that time a very popular and yet radical and renegade poet, his companion Dr. John Polidori, and pulled by the magnetic um, charisma of Byron, three others a young woman named Claire Claremont who dragged along her half-sister Mary (coughs) Wollstonecraft Godwin he should have asked me how to pronounce her name too (laughs) (laughs) Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin and her lover who was in fact married with a child uh, left back in London Percy Bysshe Shelley these five people were, well I can say that um, the Shelley Uh, Claremont Godwin group was no older than 20 Byron was
3: Byron was about 25
2: Okay, So we're talking about a pretty young group here all by themselves on the bank of Lake Nadiva Byron had found his way to the Villa Diodati which was this grand estate home overlooking the lake that had all kinds of um, ghosts attached to it that had once been um, the home of um, uh, a friend and um, therefore, it had been um, a place where um, John Milton himself, the great poet had um, had occasioned and and so this this house uh, was already full of literary ghosts, and the five of them would get together during the day and during the night it was it was in fact, as I said, dark and stormy because that was the famous summer of eighteen sixteen which um people in history have called the the year without a summer because the year before a huge indonesian volcano had created massive climate change uh, short-term climate change around the world there was so much cloud cover that um there was frosts in scotland even in july the crops worldwide did not uh, ripen there were significant um, experiences of uh, incredible storms and that was one of the things that is kind of part of the backdrop of June 1816 uh, at the Villa Diodati in Geneva Um, incredible lightning storms, they could look to one direction and see um, the Alps look to another direction and see another mountain chain and they often would see incredible lightning storms happening in all directions. One of those nights uh, after reading a few ghost stories aloud, Lord Byron put to his his group the challenge. He said, we could write a better ghost story than this. Let's all write a ghost story. And that's how our story begins.
3: It seems improbable, um, but both Frankenstein and the first modern vampire story came out of the same uh, weekend in the Villa Diodati. Uh, Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein. Uh, An early and not often read story called The Vampire uh, was the production of John Polidori. Polidori was a young um, physician uh, who had literary aspirations. He had secured uh, a post as Lord Byron's um, uh, personal physician, and so he traveled with Byron across Europe, and he settled down with Byron and this group uh, outside of Geneva in June 18. Um, 16. Uh, before he left, though, Polidori was uh, arranged with the publisher John Murray. Uh, he got a contract from Murray for 500 pounds, which was an enormous amount of money, uh, to keep a journal of uh, this trip, uh, largely because Byron was so famous, and, uh, and Murray thought it would be a good business to publish this journal after they returned from, uh, from their travels. Uh, Polidori is remembered today for two things. Um, one is this journal, which was not actually published until 1911, um, but which is our only eyewitness account, I think, of uh, this, um, this gathering. And the second thing is for uh, this, uh, this short novella called The Vampire. Uh, I called it the first modern vampire story uh, because it's at this moment um, that the vampire becomes Byronic. Um, In fact, uh, the vampire is Byron. Uh, Vampire stories, of course, go back in folklore many, many centuries, but if you look at those folk tales, what you discover uh, is that vampires are much more monstrous, much more like demons, uh, uh, lamias, uh, more like, um, I don't know, like orcs in Tolkien. Uh, It's with the vampire, with Polidori's the vampire, uh, that the vampire becomes um, suave and aristocratic and and sexually appealing. Uh, And he was modeled on Byron, as I said. In the 1810s and the 1820s, uh, no question, hands down, um, without a doubt, um, Byron was the most famous uh, poet on the face of the planet. Um, Not just in England, um, but everywhere. It's no exaggeration to say that uh, Byron is the only rock star uh, that English poetry has produced in 1,000 years. Uh, He was famous, um, first and foremost, because he wrote great poetry. Um, But there was also considerable interest in his personal life. Uh, In fact, uh, he wasn't just famous, he was a celebrity. And in fact, people who write about uh, histories of celebrity often identify Byron as the first modern uh, media celebrity uh, in Western culture. If Entertainment Weekly had been publishing in the 1810s, Byron would have been on the cover just about every other week. Um, He was famously charismatic, uh, sexually alluring, and the original bad boy. Uh, As one of his lovers, uh, Lady Caroline Lamb, famously put it, Byron was mad, bad, and dangerous to know. (laughs) His personal life, by which, of course, I mean his sex life, uh, was notorious, um, scandalous even. Uh, someone personal, he was someone whose personal charm and grace made him well nigh irresistible to both men and to women. I mean, mad, bad, and dangerous, and no, who wouldn't want to hang out with a guy like that? Uh, he was notorious for his, his many sexual liaisons. Uh, often uh, they were international, uh, very high profile, and even a few of them were, were with unmarried women. Um, there were some, uh, there was there were also rumors surrounding his reputed bisexuality, uh, and also rumors surrounding his relationship with his half sister, uh, and generally just uh, a lot of interest in the high spirited way in which uh, he conducted his life. So even during his lifetime, Byron's name had morphed into this adjective, Byronic. Um, Byron can take credit, in fact, uh, for creating one of the mythic <clears throat> figures of the modern world, and that's the Byronic hero. And the vampire, the modern vampire, is, is one version of the Byronic hero. I'm just going to read this definition, which I just pull out of a standard uh, literary history of the Byronic hero. The Byronic hero, it says, is an alien, mysterious, and gloomy spirit, superior in his passions and power to the common run of humanity, whom he regards with disdain. He harbors the torturing memories of an enormous, nameless guilt that drives him towards an inevitable doom. And he exerts an attraction on other characters that is the more compelling because it involves their terror at his obliviousness to ordinary human concerns and values. If that archetype sounds familiar, I think it's because it's still current in books and movies today. Uh, the, the, um, The ironic hero is the archetypical um, arch-rebel. He's gloomy, he's tormented, he's driven, he's rebell- rebellious, he's mysterious. He's almost certainly doomed, and he's way sexy. Um, he's the kind of guy that, that women want, and that men, well, men want him too, uh, and, uh, or they want to be him. And so he's got an enormous appeal at the same time that he's scary. Uh, when The Vampire came out, when Polidori published it three years later, um, there was actually some confusion that was, uh, I think, aided and abetted by Polidori himself and by uh, the publisher, that the story had actually been written by Byron. Um, Byron uh, disavowed it not because he cared about what people thought about him, but because he didn't want to be associated with a novel he thought was not very well written. Um, but in fact, it was tremendously popular. It follows the adventures of a, of a count named Count Ruthven, um, who travels with a, a young, a young, innocent... Uh, naive man around around Europe, uh, and uh, it leaves uh, lots of transformed women in his wake. Uh, and uh, that seemed like Byron to many people. Uh, it went through multiple editions uh, in the first couple of years after it was pub- published. It was um, translated into all the major European languages, and then it, it also quickly became a stage production, which is my cue to turn things back to Susan. Well, I, so here
2: is Mary... Walston Croft-Godwin, Percy Bysshe Shelley, and Claire Claremont in the presence of this celebrity. Um, Percy Bysshe Shelley himself was, by by 1816, a published poet as well, but not very well known. Um, His publications included a little pamphlet that he published with his own money, in 1811 while a student at the, at the University of Oxford called the necessity of atheism. It was a logical proof of why there is no proof of the existence of a god. For that he got kicked out of Oxford. Um, he also had published a very long poem called Queen Mab, which was about a fairy spirit who comes and carries away the soul of a young girl Takes her out into the universe through time and space and lets her look back down on Earth and see it from a new perspective. And Queen Mab also says, in quotes, there is no God. This was a dangerous man. He wasn't necessarily yet such a celebrity and such a, a sex symbol as Byron, but he had the potential and he also was beginning to build a reputation publicly and certainly among his friends as being an intellectual rebel. Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin was um, herself the child of two intellectual rebels. Mary Wollstonecraft, her mother, who actually died ten days after her birth, is considered the first author of a feminist track. Book um, A vindication of the rights of, you, of, of women. A vindication of the rights of women um, is considered the first feminist tract. Her father, William Godwin, was one of the um, a group of um, republican thinkers and, and people who thought perhaps the French Revolution had something going for it, and were considered by the British Crown to be great um, uh, dangers to the establishment. So that was the legacy that Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin carried with her, although she had never written anything herself, except for one silly little poem that her father had published. Um, But she had this potential. I think she was somewhat, um, uh, what's the word, overwhelmed and scared by the presence of these two male um, authors. But when that story challenge, when that ghost challenge came into her mind, she set herself on a search for a good ghost story. And what she tells, now she, in a sense, also wrote a firsthand memory of those nights in 1816, although she wrote it in 1831, and it may be sort of a uh, sentimentalized version of it. But um, what she tells us is that she kept going to bed every night wanting to figure out a story, wanting to think about a story. She just couldn't find that story. Every night she just saw a blank in her mind. And then one night as she was half asleep, she saw these yellow eyes peering into a bed and she saw a man kneeling over a body of parts and the body come to life. Thus was born Frankenstein. She began to write it, encouraged especially by her uh, lover, Percy Bysshe Shelley, and by the end of that summer she was on her way to write the novel Frankenstein. Um, It took her, interestingly enough, nine months to write the book. At the same time she was actually gestating a child Um, It's pretty amazing that she finished the book and a child was born at about the same time. Parallel to that, Percy Bysshe Shelley's wife, whom he left back in London, um, drowned herself. And so at the very end of December 1816, Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin became Mary Shelley. Um, a year later, the book was published, just as at the turn of the year going into 1818. 500 copies were published by a rather uh, um, notorious publisher. If It would be the, the, uh, similar to a kind of romance novel publisher of the day. They were known for publishing Gothic novels and books of magic. But Frankenstein, the modern Prometheus, came out in 1818. Now the amazing thing, as Stephen was talking about the, the stage versions that quickly came um, to view in of the vampire, same thing happened with, uh, with Frankenstein. And you can probably um, argue that it was not the novel, those 500 copies of the novel, that that really penetrated the imagination of the public and made Frankenstein a story that everybody knew and everybody told and everybody referred to. It was indeed, instead, the stage versions. In 1823, a play called Presumption, or The Fate of Frankenstein, was put on the stage. And from that point on, there was one story, one version after another, of Frankenstein put on the stage in London, Paris, New York. Um, There were no laws against piracy at that Mm -hmm. point. You could take somebody's story and turn it into a play, and that happened over and over. Um, there were funny versions of Frankenstein. There were serious ver- versions of Frankenstein. The first one, the monster, was all blue and wore a Roman tunic. Um, in another one, there was an avalanche, and they, the, that the theater had nothing to make an avalanche happen on stage except for this old white elef- stuffed elephant, and they threw it down on the stage, and that represented the avalanche by which both Frankenstein. The, the maker and the monster were killed. Um, they're pretty, pretty, pretty outrageous stories. The amazing thing is, within those years, in the 1820s, 1830s, Dracula, or the vampire, and Frankenstein were already paired on the stage. There were double feature theatrical showings of the vampire, the play that um, came out of Polidori's story, and Uh, Renditions of Frankenstein being shown as double features on the stage.
3: Yeah, one thing that shows is that uh, both vampires and Frankenstein stories really have quickly migrated into mass culture and pop culture, and they've continued uh, their existence primarily in that in that in that venue. Um, One of the most popular writers of the 19th century in England, especially of the 18, particularly the 1840s, 1850s, and 1860s. Uh, was a man uh, named James Malcolm Reimer. Uh, He's virtually unknown today because most of the things he wrote uh, have have disappeared. Uh, He wrote for uh, the penny press, um, the mass market, um, popular periodicals that began to spring up in the 1840s and 1850s and which coincided um, with with the spread of the reading public. Um, the the audience for uh, these penny periodicals tended to be mostly working class, um, primarily urban. Um, but the sales of, of penny periodicals, they're called penny per- periodicals obviously because they cost a penny apiece, piece, um, were far exceeded. Uh, the sales of, of you know, uh, no, even popular novelists like Charles Dickens um, or Wilkie Collins and certainly uh, exceeded the sales of poets like Tennyson um, or Browning. Reimer came from a London working class background. Uh, he was trained as a mechanic, uh, and I read one time that he uh, developed a furniture caster that is still in use today. <laughs> Uh, so there's a bit of trivia um, for you to take home today. Um, but he quickly discovered he had also had a talent for writing, and for writing quickly. Uh, he signed up with a publisher named uh, Edward Lloyd, uh, who ran, uh, who published a number of these penny periodicals, uh, and he started turning out fiction uh, with with a kind of uh, breathtaking um, prolific. Um, he's breathtakingly prolific. Uh, it was said that he could write ten novels simultaneously. Uh, and he was paid by the page, and so he turned this stuff out pretty pretty quickly. Um, he, was, he specialized in something called penny dreadfuls. Uh, it's a great phrase. Dreadful uh, in the 1840s primarily still meant something that caused dread in you. Okay, so they were horror stories. But it was also a word that was beginning to sort of morph into its, its, uh, its uh, later connotations of simply being bad. Um, uh, two, he wrote hundreds of Penny Dreadfuls, Reimer did. Two of them actually had a, had a life that has continued into the 20th century. Uh, one, uh, he called it, uh, his title was A String of Pearls, but this, the story actually became quickly became known by its subtitle, uh, which was Sweeney Todd, um, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street. So Reimer wrote Sweeney Todd, and then he wrote this other piece called um, Barney the Vampire, uh, or The Feast of Blood, a Romance of Exciting Interest, <laughs> uh, just in case you missed it uh, with the Feast of Blood. Um, this was published in uh, weekly numbers, um, a couple of pages uh, fastened together that you would pick up for a penny. Uh, it ran for about three years uh, and concerned the adventures of a vampire named Francis Varney, who clearly was, was drawing on uh, Count Ruthven. Um, Uh, But these periodicals were much more like uh, TV shows, I think, contemporary TV shows than novels, in that they were uh, episodic. Uh, There was a kind of plot line, but uh, the plot line was not really, tended not to be extended over more than a couple of episodes. Each number was more or less self-contained, and the thing was open-ended. It just kept going as long as there was an audience, so there was really no end point um, to it. if you think that uh, the connection between uh, Varney the Vampire and uh, TV shows is a little bit fanciful, uh, I will say that Varney the Vampire was, uh, was uh, there was a, a popular edition published of it in the 1950s in this country, uh, and it inspired uh, the creators of that now classic TV show, Dark Shadows. Uh, the, the creator of Dark Shadows says that Barnabas Collins' um, ancestor was Sir Francis Varney from Varney the Vampire. Uh, so this had a, had a long um, afterlife. Uh, and it also influenced Stoker, um, as did another story that was published in the 1870s um, by an Irish writer named Sheridan Le Fanu, um, known for his Gothic stories. Uh, he wrote a story called Carmilla, um, which was set in Eastern Europe and concerned a female vampire, Uh, The main tradition of vampires in the 19th century and the 20th century is male. Uh, As I've been suggesting, they tend to be Byronic figures. Um, But there's also a a strong tradition of female vampires, and that can get traced back to um, La Fanu. It's interesting that the vampire is um, associated with with, uh, traits or with features uh, that in our culture have traditionally been coded as female. Um, vampires are associated with um, with the moon um, with blood and with uh, with nature and with procreation uh, and that seems to would seem to suggest a kind of more a sort of quote unquote natural affinity between um, vampires and women um, but of course, especially in the nineteenth century, vampires are associated with sexuality, and that was rather taboo if you were talking about it in the context of female characters. all of this is leading to um, Stoker's Dracula, which was published in 1897. Stoker was also Irish. Uh, he was a writer. Uh, he wrote maybe about a dozen novels in his career. But writing novels was uh, was his avocation. It wasn't his vocation. His day job, he was theater manager um, for the Lyceum Theater which was, in London, which was the theater of the famous late Victorian actor Henry Irving. Um, Stoker worked for Irving for about 30 years. Um, I mention Irving because uh, if Polidori had his Byron, um, Stoker had his Irving, another man of enormous talent, uh, towering ego, um, great charisma, um, and, and not quite as scandalous, but still scandalous um, public life. Uh, as soon as Dracula was published, everybody said, that's Henry Irving, um, just as soon, when, like when Polidori published The Vampire, they said, that's Byron. Um, everybody thought that Dracula was Irving. Um, Irving seems not to have cared one way or the other. A um, couple of things that uh, do you want to say about Dracula you know uh, we t- what Stoker did um, that was so um, important uh, is he, he didn't he, a lot of the features that we associate with vampire stories actually are, originate with Stoker, so they only go back about hundred little more than a hundred years. Um, he, maybe he didn 't invent them, but he consolidated them. So the things like, you know, the, the garlic and the crosses and the laying in the coffin and, and so on, um, those, all, those things all originate with Stoker. Um, you can't find them very often in, in, certainly not altogether, in earlier vampire stories. Uh, the association you know, of vampires with Transylvania, that's Stoker. Um, uh, vampires didn't have to come from Transylvania, but with Stoker, since Stoker, they seem to have to have at least a summer home in Transylvania. Um, LAUGHTER And uh, the other thing he did, uh, two things. Uh, He brought the vampire into the present day. Uh, Most vampire stories had been set in the past. And he brought it right into the heart of the everyday world. Um, Dracula comes from Transylvania. Most of that novel takes place, though, in England. And most of that takes place in London. Uh, And Stoker draws a a lot of that energy in that book comes from the fact that uh, the vampire has has invaded ordinary, everyday life. <clears throat> vampire stories have been, tended to be set in exotic locales um, or beset in the past. Stoker set it in the present day, um, and he put it right in the middle of the everyday world. Um, it was a popular novel when it was published, but it was nothing like a runaway success. Uh, the real, um, uh, as with Frankenstein, Uh, The real influence um, of Dracula comes once uh, he migrates into, uh, now, films. Uh, Stoker died in 1912, which means he lived long enough to see the first vampire movies uh, in the first decade of the 20th um, century. Uh, As far as I know, there's no record of what he thought of them. Mm
2: -hmm. So interesting. So just to weave weave back a little bit... um Frankenstein, as the novel, came out in 1818. Um, but as I say, the story took its, uh, took its firepower from um, theatrical pr- presentations and also the reaction to the theater. Um, there were posters put up. Don't take your family to see this. This is a totally blasphemous story. How can you have a story about men making life uh, this is against all principles of goodness. This is atheistic. That was another uh, uh, claim. And, uh, and, and yet it was incredibly popular. And it became a part of the um, the popular idiom. There's a, there's a famous uh, speech made in Parliament in the um, early 1820s in which uh, the monster made by man is, is, is named as, as, this, as if everyone understands this reference and knows the the story, if not the novel. Um, in 1831, um, Mary Shelley was invited to republish the book in a series called Standard Novels. So by that time it really was considered a standard of English literature and I believe that it probably has never been out of print since. Um, it's One thing that's really interesting, we all use the word Frankenstein to name the monster, of course, The real person named Frankenstein is the creator of the monster. One of the reasons this mistake happens, and it started happening from the very beginning, is that the actual monster is never given a name. That is a, a kind of symbol of the lack of identity, lack of connection to society, to family, to love that that monster was brought into the world with and that he suffered from and that really in the original story is the cause of his uh, wrongdoing the cause of his violence is his anger over his disconnection with society Um, he's not in the original story he's not born bad he's made bad by society which was a kind of a principle that uh... mary shelley learned from her her, um, both of her parents Um, by the time that Dracula came out um, Frankenstein was definitely being read as a standard mo- novel, it was being published in a series of, uh, a series of uh, books that if you wanted to look literate you should have on your shelf um, and it also entered very early into the uh, silent film genre um, 1910 is the first film um, version of frankenstein and this was a thomas edison film company uh... version of a twenty minute silent film of the story of frankenstein pretty amazing and in fact you can actually go online these days through youtube and see the whole thing it's very primitive um, there are big uh... breaks in it because the the physical film itself um, there's only one known copy and it's not in very good shape but it's a pretty amazing um, rendition with a lot of psychological ramifications. There's a lot of use of mirrors, and at one point, Frankenstein looks in the mirror and sees himself, and then all of a sudden, his monster is looking at him face to face instead. Um, now, at, at about, from about that same time into the 1920s, um, more stage versions of both Dracula and Frankenstein were created. And one uh, author in particular, Peggy Webling, um, a Canadian, um, wrote scripts for both of them that were then um, bought in Hollywood by Universal Studios. And in 1931, as we can think about, um, a couple of years into the Great Depression, a period of time when um, people were down on their luck, people were really worried about everyday life, and how they were going to make it. That was the period at which Universal Studios came out with the great horror films of, of all times, particularly Dracula, which came out, I think, in January of 1931, and Frankenstein, which came out in March of 1931. They were both amazing um, successes. They. Um, Universal Studios was on a downslide, and they pulled that company right out of the uh, out of that slide and up into a great success, even in the middle of the depression and As you probably all know, though, thus began an a, a never ending flow of Dracula and particularly Frankenstein um, movies over and over and over The, the stories became the base for New movies, new retellings, tellings on beyond. Um, in the case of Frankenstein, we had Frankenstein in '31, The Bride of Frankenstein, The Son of Frankenstein, The House of Frankenstein, Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. <laughs> and when those things were tiring out, um, Universal put together a double feature in 1939 of Dracula and Frankenstein, the two best monsters of the world. Um, movies. They made a double feature and it was an incredible um, media event. They actually hired people and planted them in the audience. One as a person who was going to um, uh, faint or scream and another dressed as a nurse who was going to come and take care of that person and carry her, her or him out in the middle of the movie. It was a huge success. And it once again brought Universal Studios up out of the uh, of, out of an economic decline and into um, into uh, s- success, and um, really um, also, of course, created the the stories, the iconic characters, and the stories that we all know today without ever remembering how we learned about them.
3: <laughs> so now we're coming up to the present day, uh, and. Um Shortly after Althea asked us to uh, do this, I was standing in the checkout line at the Giant, which is where I do most of my uh, catching up on popular culture. Um, (laughs) uh, I read all the headlines on the tabloids. And uh, there was, uh, Entertainment Weekly, the 20 greatest vampires of all time. Uh, It's certainly true that vampires are a growth industry. Uh, today, uh, vampires seem to be everywhere, and I realized as I was uh, thinking about this talk today that I had to, had really sort of fallen behind. That there's been such there have been such quick developments in the vampire world uh, that I wasn't really on top of them. Um, <clears throat> uh, studies have shown that what uh, scholars do when they're trying to learn about a topic they're not really sure of, uh, you might think that they might go bury themselves in the library, but no. Um, good scholars always find somebody who knows uh, about the topic, and they just ask them. Um, so what I did was I asked my 14-year-old daughter, Haley. <laughs> uh, and so she's been my primary resource for much of this, uh, this uh, uh, latest uh, research that I've been doing. Uh, you know, the, the question is, and maybe this is the, the point at which um, uh, we can turn this out uh, to, the, to you guys, is why are vampires now so popular? Um, why do they seem to be ubiquitous in movies and TV and popular uh, literature, too? Uh, Frankenstein still, you know, is still solid, um, but we're not seeing a lot of Frankenstein movies, um, or a lot of Frankenstein... Uh, you know, Anne, Anne Rice is not writing best-selling Frankenstein wait, stories. Wait,
2: another, another indicator, I always scour the Halloween card section every year looking for Frankenstein. This year, I don't think I've even seen one. You know some years lots of Frankenstein, not too many Dracula, but lots of vampire cards these days.
3: Yeah, and I think it's 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 true that from the from the moment of Polidori and Byron up until the present day, uh, you can roughly sort of track um, what you know what a particular historical moment or culture is thinking about um, by thinking about their monsters, mm-hmm. um, and van- the fact that vampires are now have now uh, sort of come front and center. Uh, you know, I, you think back to to Anne to Anne Rice. Um, but, you know, and the Francis Ford Coppola movie of Dracula, and then Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and now the, the the Vampire Diaries, and Twilight, and True Blood. And it's really become, as I say, just like an economic boom industry. Um, but uh, it, they, it must be feeding some kind of need, some emotional or psychological need. Uh, Some of it, I think, is is the kind of need that, uh, or the kind of attraction that vampires have always had. Uh, The vampires, at least, on the if you go by Entertainment Weekly, uh, they're still way sexy, right? Um, They're still Byronic. They now seem to be available as boyfriends, Um, (laughs) uh, which uh, I don't think is is true to the tradition. Um, But uh, you know, everybody from Angel to uh, to uh, Edward Cullen. Um, they really want. They want to seem to want to settle down and have families now. Um, but but you know. But you've got this, I guess, interspecies uh, problem. that um, makes things difficult. Uh, they, there also seems to be much more um, interest today in vampires as forming their own communities. Right? They're not. They're not just solitary figures anymore. Uh, they seem to have to be parts of larger uh, groups. Uh, maybe this has something to do with uh, with uh, 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 I don't know the <clears throat> immigration or with uh, you know alternate kind of um, uh, social groups. Uh, people routinely say that uh, vampires are have become available to explore issues having to do with um, uh, gay rights. Um, <clears throat> all sorts of transgressive sexual practices and desires can get expressed um, through vampires.
2: I've also heard that. Um because HIV-AIDS is a blood-borne disease, mm-hmm. that that could be a reason why vampires are so much a part of the culture. Yeah,
3: yeah. I think so. You know, our, our, our worries about blood right. um, really get... Um,
2: and, and one of the things I've thought about is, okay, if, we're, if, if Frankenstein monsters are on a downswing, when they're on an upswing, when we're worried about Dolly the clone sheep or genetic engineering, then all of a sudden the Frankenstein monster comes more into view as a symbol of that fear... That something bad is going to happen if we make, uh, if we clone um, beings and make a mistake and they, they take on a life of their own.
3: Right. So maybe this is the moment to, um, to open the floor up for, for questions and comments.
1: How close is the proverbia and who, that medical condition and how that um, somebody have kinfolk or, I've heard that vampire. Extend from or closest to porphyria. Porphyria. Uh, something about sunlight and skin and uh, eye discoloration.
3: Oh, gosh. Uh, yeah, I, I think going back to the 19th, wow. even to the 19th century, there were, there were efforts to, to come up with medical, you know, uh, explanations um, for uh, vampires. Uh, and certainly these conditions exist. Um, but I don't think um, that uh, the vampire stories depend on their existence. Mm-hmm. Uh, the question is about Vlad the Impaler, the, uh, the um, I think, 16th century Romanian count uh, who is ta- often taken as a prototype for Dracula. Yes, uh, Stoker uh, did know something about those legends. He did uh, do research in the British Library while he was writing Dracula, and he did read um, accounts of Transylvania. He did come across accounts of Vlad the Impaler. Uh, and he, took, he did take, you know, Maybe he wasn't modeling Dracula exclusively on Henry Irving. Uh, He was taking um, um, features from Vlad the Impaler, too. Uh, Yeah, yeah, Stoker's um, imagination, he had a very sort of magpie kind of imagination. He was taking things from different places and and bringing them together. Um, And this was certainly one of them.
0: The next question came from a person who pointed out that zombies may have taken the place of Frankenstein in pop culture.
2: That's a really good point. Um, the suggestion was that maybe the, um, di- that as Frankenstein monster stories have disappeared, zombie, st- zombie stories have, have re, um, uh, uh, or ha- are appearing more. And it's true that there are zombies and vampires, lots of them. I mean, look at, um, what is it, Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies? Um, one of, a great bestseller these days.
3: Right.
2: Um, you know about that one? Yes. <laughs> I don't remember the name of the.
3: Author. Uh, I don't remember. He's re, he's he's produced two of these. I, you can go again. You go on YouTube, and if you type in um, "Sense and Sensibility and Sea Monsters," right. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you can get a, a wonderful trailer for the movie where uh, the two main characters of Austin's novel Sense and Sensibility are, are standing up by a lake and they're professing their love for one another and a sea monster comes up and grabs one of them. Uh, what the guy has done is he has taken these two Austen novels, uh, reprinted about 70% of Austen's original text, uh, taken about 30% of it out, and inserted a story about zombies, in the one, and sea monsters in the other. Uh, and uh, they've been tremendously successful. I haven't, had to, I haven't read them yet. I,
2: I read a couple of pages of Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, and I got it. And, but I bought the book. That's what counts, right? Sure,
3: sure. Somebody had um, to... That's
2: a really good point, because zombies are um, like uh, a body that has come back to life, and that's what Frankenstein is. There is a really interesting um, kind of yin and yang about Dracula and Frankenstein in the sense that, let me, this is hard to say but let me get it right. Where Dracula is someone who was alive and something happened to keep him from dying the Frankenstein monster is parts of a dead body into which life was endowed, you know, which was endowed with life. And um, there is the, now the novel uh, in, in many of the versions of the retelling of Frankenstein the, the monster does die too although in many of them he keeps going including in the novel even though he says he's going to die to, die, to basically to kill himself you don't see that happen so there is a sense of endlessness, really in a, in a way both stories have this, this threat that it's never going to end, that these monsters are always going to be with us somehow or other. I was really interested in what Stephen had to say about the femaleness of, of Dracula because there is a, f- a funny way Frankenstein. All of the main characters are male, and it's, a lot has been made in the in the literature about how Mary Shelley wrote about a male figure who makes a male monster, and his friends are male. There is a there is a bride. Uh, uh, I mean, not of Frankenstein, but a bride, a bride of the maker of the monster in the novel um, and she becomes a victim of the monster. But most of the characters are male and it's, a, a lot has been made of the idea that it's a male birth um, written by a woman whose mother died when she gave birth to her. Um, there's a lot about birth in birth and death and the intermingling of birth and death in Frankenstein and I think that's one reason why we, we like to tell the story over and over because we're tackling those Issues in our own psyches. Um, as if someone b- is born, someone is going to die. If you give birth to a child, that child might die. And so birth and death are always there uh, as, as sort of part of the fear of being alive um, in, our, in our lives.
0: The next question asked whether stories and films that deal with artificial intelligence gone mad may have evolved from Frankenstein.
2: Right. I, I think, think that's a really good Althea point.
3: keeps signaling us to repeat yeah, the question. Yeah, I really do that. Um, to, oh, sorry. The,
2: the, the point was that in, the, another way in which the Frankenstein story is being told not with the monster anymore, but in other ways in, in modern culture, is the artificial intelligence myth. That is, that we're creating computers that are going to become smarter than us and are going to take over the world. And um, I agree. That is a kind of, it's a, it's a parallel story, and it... It expresses that same fear that something that we create could become better, smarter, um, more dangerous, overwhelming to us, and in the long run hurt us. I agree, definitely.
3: Mm -hmm. Yes.
2: I think it was a 16th century myth or story in Poland about a golem. Well it's much the older the, yeah the question has to do with the the it's a it's a yeah it's a Jewish myth about the Golem and actually in that same era of the early um, silent films there was a, a film made of the Golem as well which was one of the classics of horror film the Golem was a a man made of clay that gets um, life put into it and it, it is supposed to cr- uh, protect the uh, the village and actually un in the long run, becomes more of an enemy of the village. Um, I never have found any proof that Mary Shelley knew that. Maybe she did, maybe she didn't. There's no place that I've seen her writing about it in letters, journals, whatever. There's no really clear reference to it in Frankenstein. Um, And so maybe she knew it, but it also may be just that that whole... Myth of making something that becomes something we never expected it to become is just part of human life.
1: Yes. Steve, on your question about the growing popularity of vampires and modern culture, I was just thinking, going back to the Middle Ages, the way that we fulfilled the human need for stories with an evil character was usually to go to the devil, some proxy for the devil as an embodiment evil, from the Middle Ages to Dan Anker. <laughs> yeah. uh, time time to yes. um, Today, I suppose it's harder to sell. Uh, Christian traditional mythology is the basis for those stories, so maybe that's opened a big window for vampires, if you agree that vampires are evil enough to stand instead the of devils.
3: Yes, although with uh, did everybody hear that question? Or that comment? Okay. Um, yes, I, one thing things I learned from this Entertainment Weekly is that there's a, there's, um, a series of novels in which uh, the, the sort of origin myth of vampires is that they were, some, some of them were angels that fell out of heaven with Lucifer. Uh, so that suggests that there, there is this uh, connection still going on. It also uh, is, it takes us back uh, to Milton's Paradise Lost, which is an, uh, the Satan in Milton is often taken as the precursor of the Byronic hero. Uh, the the Romantic poets were very taken with um, with Milton's um, depiction of Satan, thought he was much more interesting than Milton's depiction of God, um, and thought and even uh, William Blake even said uh, famously that Milton was of Satan's party even if he didn't know it. Um, so that connection, I think, is is I think a pretty strong one, uh, and there you know there I think it's less true now um, that there are Christian overtones to most vampire stories, but you know the whole cross thing, the uh, holy water thing, um, you clearly it's got some connection with theological issues. And one thing that uh, what you find in, in Stoker's novel in, in Dracula is. Uh, Number of interesting conversations between Professor Van Helsing, who is the, who really is the one who uh, uh, leads the charge against Dracula, and some of the other characters about the relationship between religious faith and scientific reason in the modern world. Uh, Van Helsing's position is that if you if that simply being an empiricist and a rationalist uh, ill equips you to understand the the real complexity of the modern world. Yeah. Um, I have a question
2: also, you know, that also builds on the idea of the Christian mythology of vampire stories. And that is, I was talking to a Twilight fan, and I haven't read any of it, I don't know any of it, about it, and I made the comment that it seemed strange to me that there wasn't more of a backlash against the vampire stories that are so popular right now. And she said, oh no, there's actually a really strong um, presence throughout the... Books of resisting desire, but there is that sexual element there that precends, you know, all of these stories in any time. But there's also this idea of repressing that desire. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something that was in the original, also, in
3: the end of the I think uh, the, so. The question is uh, within the Twilight um, novels, which uh, again I have only know at second hand. Uh, although I do know that Stephanie Meyer is you know, Mormon, um, and uh, has said that she has said that she wanted to produce uh, uh, vampire stories that could be read safely by adolescent girls, and so <clears throat> uh, sex has been replaced by romance, I think, in those stories, and the the vampire uh, lead, the rom- the romantic hero, is someone who very much doesn't want to um, bite his girlfriend. Right, uh, until they can be together forever, if that ever happens. Uh, so, you know, how romantic is that? Uh, <laughs> uh, I would say that means that these stories are—I don't—they're they're both more knowing about the sexual element, um, but maybe in certain ways they are more repressed. Dracula is, seems Stoker seems utterly clueless at times about the sexual content of his story. Um, but it's much more, for to readers, it's much more at the front of the story than, uh, I think, in, from what I hear about Twilight. Uh, the question is, uh, the comment was that there was, there's now a, um, Stoker's great, is it great-nephew? At least. Yeah, great, great. maybe a couple great-nephew, has, has written a sequel to Dracula that was just published this last fall. Uh, I owe that knowledge to uh, Susan, who told me this when we were talking about um, a couple, earlier this week.
2: Yeah, I, he paired with a with a novelist, as I understand it, and this will be the the um, authorized sequel um, to, just as we had the authorized sequel to Gone with the Wind, now we're going we're to have the family authorized sequel to Dracula. But I, you I haven't it. I haven't. I'm not sure it's out yet. I think I may have just have written read, uh, I may just have read about it happening, but I'm not sure.
3: You can be among the first.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: A bit of a tangent, but this group might appreciate. Um, Susan, in your research on pictorial history, I think you clarified or cleared up some um, some of the mistaken origins of the honor system here. And maybe that would be an interesting (laughs) thing, because I think the Yeah, okay,
2: well I'll talk about that, but I do want to say one thing that really, really I think is so interesting to think about is the possibility that Jefferson read Frankenstein. It was published in 1818. He was a literate fellow. Um, It's very possible, I think, that he could have read the novel, owned the novel. I I don't know. Anyway. you <laughs> 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 it, I, 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 my understanding is koi barefoot has made quite a, quite a bit bit about this too that um, that in fact there are let me just say there's lots more that was going on to create the honor system besides just the um, the uh, Shooting of a prof- one professor one time. I, I don't have that. I'm, I'm somewhere else right now, Ann. I'm sorry. I'm right. in Frankenstein land, land, not in University of Virginia land right
3: now. Right. <laughs> I do like the idea, the image in my head now of, of Jefferson under the covers with a flashlight reading
2: <laughs>
3: Reading uh, Frankenstein. A
2: candle. A, a candle, that's right. That's a candle,
3: candle. reading. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Althea says we have time for one more question.
2: I'll just make one point. Oh, go ahead. We'd rather have a question. I wanted to ask you uh, both if you have favorite film or Uh, TV versions of Dracula and Frankenstein. Good question. The question was, do we have favorite film or or TV versions of Frankenstein and Dracula? Um, Should we each talk about our own
3: particular? Uh, Sure. Sure. I I will just say that uh, I am a huge Buffy the Vampire. Fan. Yeah, so uh, Angel Spike, Darla, Drusilla, I love those guys. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, I, have, um, I would say, first of all, the two Boris Karloff, um, Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, the two James Whale Boris Karloff films, especially Bride of Frankenstein, is spectacular. Um, but I also want to point, point you to an amazing movie called The Spirit of the Beehive, it's a Spanish movie it's kind of hard to find, but if you ever get a chance to see it it's about a little girl who lives in Spain during the Franco regime and um, sees in a dusty old building on you know a, a sheet put up on the wall um, the, the Boris Karloff original Frankenstein and then the monster becomes a symbol in her imagination for growing up for facing the realities of sexuality and violence and in the long run she actually meets the monster in her life um, it's a beautiful movie and it really hasn't gotten as much attention as it should the spirit of the beehive
3: great well thank you, great. Thank you.